Good morning again. Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of John in the New Testament and to chapter 11. We're going to study John 11, 1 through 44 this morning. Lord willing. That's our text. The topic we find there, Jesus weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. The title of our message, While My Savior Gently Weeps. Father, thank you for the Gospel of John. Thank you for the Apostle John. Thank you, Lord, that you've recorded for us things that are needful for our understanding of how much you love us, of your mercy and your grace. Uh, Lord, you said that you were on every page of Scripture, uh, never more so than in the Gospels, Lord, where we hear your words and see your actions. May your Spirit teach us, Lord. Uh, He's the only one that can get between the soul and the Spirit and really bring spiritual truth home. You also mentioned that you would be in the midst of your church when it's gathered, Lord, to to minister, walking in the midst of the candlesticks, as it were. And so, Lord, we want to be open to all that you have for us. We want to receive, Lord, from your throne. You say your mercies are new every morning, and we definitely need them this morning and every morning. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. The waiting room. I hate when they make you wait in the room because it says waiting room. There's no chance of not waiting because they call it the waiting room. They tell you up front and they're going to use it as the waiting room. They've got it. It's all set up for you to wait. You might recognize that snippet from comic Jerry Seinfeld. It resonates because we hate the wait. We're going to talk about waiting, but not ours. Jesus waited. He waited two days after he received news that his friend Lazarus was seriously sick. While Jesus waited, Lazarus died. It caused both the sisters of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, to say to him upon his arrival, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Not to worry, sisters. Jesus will call Lazarus forth from the tomb and encourage us about our permanent resurrection from the dead. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, when Jesus waits... You experience what you believe. And number two, when Jesus waits, you experience how he loves. Let's talk about what we believe and putting it into practice or experiencing it in the first 16 verses. Police officer candidates attend the academy for six months. When they're picked up by a department, they undergo months of field training. Their field training officer, FTO, evaluates them on how they translate what they learned in the academy to life on the mean streets of Riverdale. Don't go there at night. We need to experience how what we learn about God translates on the mean streets of the world. Jesus was about to lead his guys into the world of death, life, and the afterlife to experience the difference it makes knowing God. One of their own, as it was, was going to die, and they were going to get a chance to experience Uh, and to translate their teaching from Jesus Christ into practical terms and to watch how he handled this situation. And so we pick it up, of course, in verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Not the Lazarus from the duo of the rich man and Lazarus. This Lazarus lived with his two sisters, and uh, Jesus often enjoyed their hospitality. He was often at their house. Verse 2, it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, 
whose brother Lazarus was sick. Mary was known for one remarkable act of love for Jesus. It's reported here out of order. It occurs, the event itself, after her brother was raised from the dead. We'll see it in chapter 12. But the readers are being put on notice who this Lazarus was and who this Mary was because almost everybody was named Mary in those days. That was the popular child's name. And so it's giving some real identification. And as I said, she was known for this one thing. It gets you thinking, what, what, are you, what am I known for? Don't answer, please. But, you know, what, am I, what do I want to be known for would be a better question. And then I should spiritually work towards that. We sometimes, you know, say, what do you want on your tombstone? And after you say pepperoni and everybody laughs, then uh, you say, but seriously, you're going to have, maybe you'll have a tombstone, maybe a marker, who knows. Yeah, you ever gone through the cemetery and read some of the, I, I never go through cemeteries, don't, don't get me wrong. Uh, but I've been in a lot of cemeteries, and while the services are getting ready to start, I, I try to peruse different gravestones and see what people write, and, and some of it's pretty interesting. Still the weirdest one ever is here at Hanford Cemetery. There's a Raiders headstone, uh, a full-blown Oakland Raiders, uh, not just a fan, you know, not, not a, not, it's not Daryl LaMonica's grave or anything like that, you know, uh, but it uh, tells you how old I am. Fred Bolitnikoff, remember those guys? Yeah. No, you don't. But anyway, uh, so uh, what do you want on your tombstone? Work towards it. It should be something about the Lord, right? Don't, don't you want to be remembered for your love for Jesus Christ in some sense? Absolutely, you do. Therefore, the sister sent to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. The Gospels emphasize Jesus' humanity. He set aside the independent use of his deity in order to be our example of a man walking with God. Jesus was fully God and fully man. When he was incarnate, when he was born, he added humanity to his deity. And so he was both. We should say at the same time, but we don't really understand it because he's so unique. But in terms of his ministering on earth, in fact, in terms of his entire life on earth, including his ministry, he set aside the independent use of his deity, never used it, and walked only as a man in obedience to God so that we would know what that could be like, what it, what it was intended to be like back in the garden and what it can be like. Uh, and so as a man, he's hearing this news for the first time, just like you and I hear news about our loved ones. Uh, you, I don't want to bring anything up that would hurt you, but the last time you heard bad news, I mean, it just hits you hard. Everything seems to be going all right. And then all of a sudden they come and say, there's a note here from Mary and Martha. Lazarus is sick and he's going to die. And so Jesus receives this note. He's omniscient, but as a man, he's hearing this for the first time. And when Jesus heard that in verse 4, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, knowing what we know about this chapter, we would see this as a word of knowledge uh, a word of knowledge is a supernatural gift from the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit telling you something you can't otherwise know. And so Jesus hears this news, and then the Spirit ministers to him, this isn't unto death. Not meaning that Lazarus can't die, but that he won't stay dead. Which is also interesting, you know, because the word, that, you know, this isn't unto death, but then he does die, and it seems like, well, then was God wrong? Well, no, just wait. Wait it out. See how this is going to pan out. Did God the Father cause Lazarus to be sick and die? 
That's an assumption based entirely on theology. The Bible says nothing like that. And really, we know nothing about Lazarus except what we read here. That's hard to believe. I thought, well, wait a minute. We must know a lot about Lazarus. But if you do any kind of search for it in the Bible or online, we only know what is recorded here. I never thought this, but Lazarus may have been an old man. We assume, I think, or I assume, maybe you don't, I assume that he was Jesus' age and Jesus hung around with him, maybe drank coffee in the morning when played racquetball or, you know, whatever they did. But he could have been an old man. He could have been infirmed. He, he could have been a widower. He was living out his days with his two spinster sisters. Uh, and, and so it's very interesting not knowing much about this family, sometimes the conclusions we draw. Loved ones die. They die old. They die young. They die of natural causes. They die from illnesses. They die peacefully. They die tragically. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. That doesn't seem to make sense, really. He, he loved him, and so he waited to go see him. And John puts that together on purpose so that we will understand that there is something going on in this situation, something more important than whether or not Lazarus is going to die from an earthly point of view. There is a heavenly story unfolding. Jesus had a close personal relationship with his family. That's not to say that he loved them more than anyone else. In fact, if you think about it for a minute, Jesus is not capable of loving anyone any less than anyone else. Uh, God the Father says he loves you the way he loves his own son. Not any less, not any more, with a full and purposeful love. Then after this, verse seven, uh, 7, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, or meaning teacher, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. There's a time to wait and a time to stop waiting. And Jesus had come to the time to stop waiting and go. Now, the disciples, this is just speculation on my part, but it's interesting, I think. They, I'm sure, were curious as to why Jesus was delaying. And maybe they thought, well, Jesus probably wants to go down there, but the Jews wanted to stone him a little while ago. And so uh, I'm sure he's being cautious and thinking, well, I just, you know, Love to be there, but I can't because of the danger. But that wasn't it at all. Jesus said, you know, after two days, he said, all right, let's go, pack up, get your little knapsacks, and let's go. He didn't care about the danger. He was on a timeline that his father was giving him. He was all about obeying the father. Obedience, he says, is like walking in the daylight. Disobedience is a futile attempt to walk in darkness. You stumble and you fall. You, uh, there may be times you and everyone else assumes they know what to do, but we're not listening to God. Uh, it sounds trite, but we need to make it so that it's not trite, but sometimes we need to say, hey, have you prayed about this? Have you sought the Lord? Are you, which meaning, are, are you sure this is God's will? And if it is, and, and God has confirmed it to you, then uh, you know, that's what you need to do. You, we can't assume that God works the same way every time or what we think is good, God will think is good. 
I remember a story years ago that shocked me as a, a young minister. Chuck Smith said he, uh, Pastor Chuck of Calvary Costa Mesa, said he had a guy one time come up to him after church and say he wanted to make a donation of $1 million to the church. And Chuck said that he felt that the Holy Spirit told him to refuse it. And he did. And I said, no, Chuck, that's not possible. Come on. Is he still around? Is he still looking for some place to give the money? But Chuck, he said that he was, he doesn't know why exactly the Lord, you know, ministered that way, but he, he always shares that perhaps, you know, then how does God get the glory if you get a million dollars from somebody and all of a sudden you've got a million bucks, you know, and stuff. And so uh, now uh, it's, it's situation by situation. I know other guys and probably even Chuck that have taken large donations and, and all. And so the, the point is, is it really what God wants you to do? It would seem on the surface a no-brainer, right? But it's not. It's, it's, we want to know what the Lord wants to bring out of it. This episode is not an excuse to hesitate either, to say, oh, you know, I, I, I'm going to wait. I don't feel led. It's a reminder to press on in the will of God. Verse 11, these things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps but I go that I may wake him up. Then the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Why not just start with that? Why not lead with that? Well, remember, Jesus is also trying to teach them and learn what they know and all. And uh, it, it wasn't unusual. Jesus didn't invent this. It wasn't unusual for people to talk about death as sleep. Uh, anybody who believes in an afterlife, especially a, a resurrection, would refer to physical death as sleep because your body may be in the grave, but your spirit is vitally alive somewhere and will be put back together with your body. And so Jesus was saying, hey, Lazarus, uh, you know, is, is dead the way that people die in the sense that his body is no longer occupied by his soul and his spirit and they don't get it and so he says no you guys Lazarus died this would be a second word of knowledge from the Lord uh, how, how did he know Lazarus died nobody came and told him he just knew from Abel who was the first person to die to Jesus the souls of everyone who died went to a place called Hades Hades is not hell hell is the lake of fire Hades is a place uh, where people went after they died, their spirit, uh, that is. Separated from their physical body, they are conscious and alive and could feel. We've talked about Hades many times. Part of it was a place of uh, torment where people await the uh, resurrection uh, of the unrighteous dead, the second resurrection. Part of it is a place called Abraham's bosom and paradise where the believers await the coming of the Lord. Since everybody is going to be resurrected in their own order, the Bible describes your physical death as sleep. And so verse 15, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. We know that Jesus' deliberate delay was going to result in a notable miracle. And we get excited about things like that in the Bible. We, we can flip the page. We, you know, hey, just don't be discouraged, Paul. Don't be discouraged, David. Come on, you guys, wait it out. Look, look ahead. You don't know what the Lord is going to do. Uh, in this case, he's going to raise Lazarus. Uh, he's going to come out of the grave. That's great. But for the most part, our loved ones don't rise from the dead. 
none of my loved ones and none of the people I've ever officiated at their funeral, to my knowledge, has risen from the dead. And I'm not really being facetious. I'm just saying, hey, uh, you know, when we read these stories, we have to recognize we get all excited about what God can do. And then if he doesn't do it for us, we're prone to a real letdown. Not, we're probably not looking all the time for Jesus to rise people from the dead, to you know, bring them back from the grave. But we certainly have our expectations in other, what we would call lesser areas about what God is doing and not doing. And, but the same thing, wait and flip the page, okay? Uh, for us, it's not a page in the Bible, it's a page in our life as a living epistle to see what the Lord is going to do at the end. And ultimately, we all flip the page and find ourselves in heaven before the throne in our glorified bodies. And so we can always jump ahead to that. By the way, I'll say this again, but it's appropriate here. It wasn't a really great thing that Lazarus came out of the grave. For one thing, he had to die again. How would you like to die? You know, if, we'll get to that, but just, just think about that. Just leave me alone, Lord. <laughs> I just, you know, I didn't pray this. You know, who's praying for me to come out of the grave? Not me. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, so he must have had a twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Was Thomas a downer? Gimli the dwarf helps us see Thomas in a different than usual light. Aragorn announced that he was marching to the black gate of Mordor. Gimli responded, certainty of death, small chance of success. What are we waiting for? It's the same kind of thing, maybe, that Thomas said. At least Thomas was uh, fiercely loyal. Even if he is saying, uh, all right, let's go die. He, he goes. I, I think he's a more of a Gimli saying, yeah, let's, you know, sooner or later there's going to be a confrontation and it's all going to come down to, you know, Jesus versus these guys. And he's, he was ready for it. Remember, all the disciples were looking for the kingdom to be established. And so, you know, this... I think he was excited about going. Thomas said, let us also go that we may die with him. Jesus told us, go into the world, make disciples of all men. Let us go with the Lord. And he said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And so these are words that we could say. I'm envisioning our next T-shirt. Big go in the middle. And then they say, let us also go that we may die with him. How would you like to explain that to your friends and people? All right. What are you talking about? Talking about the Lord. Verses 17 through 44, when Jesus waits, you experience how he loves there's something called impassibility, not impossibility, but impassibility. It's the branch of theology that asks, is God capable of suffering or feeling pain? If so, to what extent does our behavior affect him? And there are theologians all over the map from one end of the spectrum to the other. Jesus certainly wasn't impassable. We'll see that he felt very strongly. Verse 17, so when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Mar Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. The Jews were a same-day burial culture. You had to be constantly ready 
for a funeral. Think of the pressure that would put on you as, a, you know, as an individual. I would want to have a reversible tunic, white on one side, black on the other. Hey, uh, Lazarus died. Excuse me for a minute while I change my tunic and I'm ready. Or just wear black all the time. But seriously, are you ready right now for a funeral to happen later this afternoon? If somebody died, God forbid, and we said, hey, uh, we'll be at the church at 6 p.m. tonight, bring whatever you can as far as a potluck, but so-and-so died and we have to bury them right away. It just, it just, it seems like it would change your mindset about death and living with death. Uh, I, I can't speak for, for, you know, how they thought really, but I know that, uh, you know, being involved in a lot of deaths over the years and funerals and all, uh, people, they, they don't like to deal with it at all. We, we, we don't think about it and that's okay. I don't, I don't go around thinking about death all the time either, but in our culture, it's very different. We, we try not to think about death or we try to cheat death or overcome death, these people lived death all the time. And I'm sure a lot of people were dying all the time in that culture as well. And so uh, it's very interesting to think about what your daily life would be like if you sincerely believed you could be attending one or more funerals that day. Verse 20, now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but, Jesus, uh, or, but Mary rather was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God will be given to you. Martha did the math. She knew Jesus had deliberately delayed. This is a where were you? You need to make this right comment. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Martha misunderstood. Her brother was going to rise right now. D.L. Moody commented, Jesus never preached any funeral sermons. Think about it. And so I'm not saying Martha was wrong or, I mean, we wouldn't have been very much further along spiritually than she was, but she might have extrapolated from all the works that Jesus had done that he had never left anyone dead. And I know it's a big ask, uh, you know, to think that her brother's going to rise, but... um, Anyway, that's, it's interesting. He never preached at a funeral. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Billy Graham said, you're born, you suffer, you die. Fortunately, there's a loophole. All the dead will be resurrected. The righteous over a period of time, then the wicked all at once. You might join the believers who die before the coming of the Lord. You know loved ones in Christ who have died. You may die before the resurrection of the church. If you do, you'll live. You'll be alive in, uh, with the Lord. The Bible says we don't go to Hades anymore. That's all over with. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And he's in heaven seated at the right hand of the Father. And so you and I will live. Again, quoting D.L. Moody, as I go into a cemetery, I like to think of the time when the dead shall rise from their graves. Thank God our friends are not buried, they are only sown, because we know that we're going to come out of the graves. Now, who are the believers who shall never die? Well, you know already. Who is it that will never die? It is Christians in the church age who are alive when Jesus Christ comes to rapture the church. 
And so this is an often overlooked, uh, I don't know if I call it a proof text, but it's an offer, often overlooked reference, I believe, to the rapture of the church. Some of the guys at Dallas Seminary believe that as well, because we are the ones, you know, who hopefully, I mean, the Lord could come right now, and we will be a people who never died. Uh, and so that's, it's pretty exciting. We shall not sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Oftentimes people will say in your times of stress and grief, fall back on what you know to be true about God. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that might be the only place you can hang out. You might not know anything more, but that's enough. And so she draws back into the understanding that she believes that Jesus is the Messiah with a special relationship with his Father and that he's in the world for a purpose. She didn't have the book of Romans, but she was trusting that all things would work together for good because she and her sister and her brother most certainly love the Lord and vice versa. And verse 28, when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Martha rushed to Jesus. Mary came when called. Two very different responses. Don't think there is only one way that every Christian must respond to suffering and death. We all should react as believers should and can in the power of the resurrection, grieving but with hope, looking to eternal life. I mean, we don't approach death at all the way a non-believer does. We have a completely different handle on it. Uh, It's easier when it's somebody that we don't really know that we're not close to, quite honestly. But the same way we would react to that spiritually, we can react to our loved ones dying as well, but with obviously a lot more emotion. Everyone's processes are different. Some may be in the academy, so to speak. Others are in their field training. Still others are spiritual FTOs. And so people are at different places in their walk, different relationships with the deceased. Uh, Don't expect everyone to react the same way. Then verse 31, the Jews who were with her in the house comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly, went out, followed her saying, she's going to the tomb to weep there. They didn't really know where she was going, and so they assumed she would go to the tomb and weep. People mean well, but these people had an idea of what Mary ought to be doing. Oftentimes it is the person who is hurting that is suffering grief that ends up having to minister to those who came to comfort them because the comforter doesn't really know what to do or what to say, and we, you know, we become a burden rather than a blessing. And so if you're going to comfort somebody, make sure that it is a real comfort. I mean, be practical. Don't overstay. Don't say stupid things like I would. You know, don't, uh, you, know you know what I mean. You, know, you never, never go into a situation and say, you know, it could have been worse. Yeah, well, thanks a lot. Could have been better. It could have happened to you. You know, I mean, that, yeah, that, that would be the proper response as far as I'm concerned, right? That would make it better too. So just be careful in those situations. Don't be a person who needs to be ministered to when somebody is suffering. Minister to them or, you know, just tell them you'll pray for them. I had a guy the other night because Pensieros are going through a bunch of stuff and he said, I don't know what to say, I'll pray for you. That's it in a nutshell. 
Then when Mary came uh, to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. To hear this a second time, that's rough, especially since Jesus was following his father's timeline. It's not recorded, and I doubt Jesus said it anyway, but Jesus doesn't say, hey, I'm following my father's timeline. If you have a problem, take it up with the big guy. I mean, it's, you know, he he just, he knows that she's grieving. You can be 100% in God's will and be totally misunderstood. In the book of Acts, the apostle Paul uh, is told by God to go down to Jerusalem. Along the way, as he's traveling, he receives prophecies and other warnings that in Jerusalem await him chains, incarceration, and persecution. And all the believers are urging him to turn aside. And Paul says, God told me to go to Jerusalem. Even today, there are commentators, in fact, sometimes the majority of them, who feel like Paul was not in the will of God because of the consequences he uh, received. And of course he was in the will of God. Not that he was perfect, but you know, if God tells you to go to Jerusalem because you're going to get arrested there, you go. And, and yet, who would say, you know, if, if, if a missionary came to us, we don't have a mission board, but let's say we did, and say, hey, I, the Lord wants me to go to, uh, where I don't know, wherever the worst place in the world to go is right now, where they hate Christians the most, and go up to the first guard I see and tell him I'm a Christian, I want to go to jail. Uh, we'd probably say, well, you better rethink that. We don't see that as a valid ministry, you know. And, and, but that's essentially what Paul did. Luckily, he had a reputation of hearing from God and of being used in remarkable ways. But even then, and even today, people think he was not in the will of God. Martha and Mary did not think Jesus would let their brother die. When he did, it threw them. That's the whole idea. They sent for Jesus right away, and then when he didn't come and he finally came, they said, if you would have been here, our brother would be alive. They absolutely expected Jesus to heal him. And they were blown away when he died. They were struggling with an old problem. Why do the righteous suffer? How do we account for the proliferation of evil and its consequences? We talk about this quite a lot here. We suggest that our free will is responsible for evil and its consequences. Adam and Eve exercised the free will God had given them. They brought sin and death into the universe And since that time forward, the world has never been the same. It is a world of evil with its consequences. And you still say, well, why doesn't God do something? Well, he has. We we know that. He promised in the garden he would come. He came. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. And then you can read the revelation and see how it all ends. And so God's got it all under control, you might say. Well, why do people still suffer? God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. I ran across this quote, too, Christian novelist D. Henderson, talking about free will. I like this. She says, God decided to create a world where free will was more important than no one ever getting hurt. There must be something stunningly beautiful and remarkable about free will that only God can truly grasp because God hates, literally abhors evil, yet he created a world where evil could happen if people chose it. And so none of this is God's fault. And he has done everything he can. And, and it will be over one day. We know that. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came out with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? 
And they said, uh, come and see, Lord. Jesus wept. Bible trivia, in Greek, Jesus wept has 16 letters. A shorter verse is 1 Thessalonians 5.13, which says rejoice always, having only 14 Greek letters. You can win many a bet on that. Next time somebody says Jesus wept is the shortest verse in the Bible, go for it. Jesus would weep again, looking over Jerusalem and seeing its destruction for having rejected him. It's a safe bet to say he cried more. He was described by Isaiah as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He wasn't a bummer to be around. He wasn't full of, uh, you know, just Eeyore type stuff. He was full of unspeakable joy because he had the Holy Spirit. Jesus had the full spectrum of human emotions only perfectly. He had perfect human emotions and he felt deeply. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Again, it threw them that Jesus didn't get there to heal him on time. When asked why do bad things happen to good people, you could answer, that only happened once and he volunteered. Think about it. Who are the good people that bad things happen to? Well, Jesus in one place of the gospel says, only God is good. Only God is good. And there's a sense in which people deserve judgment and condemnation. We're born into the world condemned, and if we don't come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we will be cast aside into the lake burning with fire. And so it's not that we deserve. The question, why do people suffer, you know, is making a statement that we, we deserve better. And we don't. And I know you think it's unfair, and I think it's unfair. Adam, Adam, why? Adam and Eve, come on, guys. For a fig? Look at what you did. Why? Well, I don't know. That'd be like me, you know, arguing, you know, something about my genetics. Lord, why? Why am I prone to have belly fat like my dad? You know, that kind of, I mean, it just is. Verse 38, then Jesus again groaning in himself came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. He wept and then he groaned within himself. Deep emotion from the Lord. The Holy Spirit is said to groan within, unbelie or within believers rather in Romans chapter 9. It's not that he interprets our groaning. He groans when he's grieved, for example. I was thinking a great country song would be groaning and grieving, right? The Holy Spirit's a groaning and a grieving? All right, maybe not. Don't quit your day job. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, he stinks. He's been dead four days. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Christians are sometimes troubled about cremation or bodies that are otherwise blown to smithereens. Uh, this isn't a teaching on cremation, obviously, but God had no trouble with Lazarus's decaying body. Uh, he didn't come out of the grave with flesh falling off of his face or anything like that. And so if you choose to be cremated or if you're otherwise lost to the elements, uh, there's not going to be a problem. Verse 41, then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. 
This is interesting. Uh, this public prayer, Jesus says, I'm doing it in a certain way so that the people here will understand something about our relationship. Now, Jesus wasn't preaching to the people. He was talking to his father, but he was getting something across. If you ever asked to pray in public, you know, public secular form, for example, I would recommend that you find a short passage from the scriptures, maybe a psalm, and when you get up there, say, Psalm such and such says this, let's pray, maybe pray something in conjunction with that psalm, and then at the end, make sure you use the J word, Jesus. And you can do all of that in less than three or four minutes and have a really wonderful testimony to that group. And if you want to pray in public and you go longer than five minutes, there's something wrong with you. Long prayers aren't better prayers. They're unthought of prayers. They're not, they're not thoughtful, right? And so be thoughtful about what you're doing. And notice, too, Jesus prayed with his eyes open. I'm not saying we have to do that or should do that, but uh, everybody, you know, when I talk to my wife, I don't usually bow my head and close my eyes. It's dangerous, for one thing. I can't see things coming at me. But uh, no, that's not true. But, uh, you know, anyway, just an observation. Verse 43, now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. After 21 previous films, we finally got to hear Captain America say, Avengers, assemble. And he said it in almost a whisper, not a loud shout. Jesus went loud so that there would be no doubting he was being used by the Father to recall Lazarus. He said, he called Lazarus' name and everyone in the vicinity heard it and had their eyes focused on the grave. Anyway, uh, the part of Hades where Lazarus resided after death was called Abraham's bosom. It was called paradise. If I was an old man, I'm not, living with my sisters in the first century, you're an old man, probably infirm, probably a widow, a widower, living with your widowed sisters in the first century, and you left your body behind, and you were hanging out with Abraham and the other Lazarus and all these cool Old Testament saints, and all of a sudden, Lazarus, and what just happened? I'm in my body, my infirm body that's going to die again. I would prefer Hades to home any day, right? Uh, no, that's not true. You would prefer home to Hades. No? You decide. His hands and feet bound, it must have been hard for him to move. Neither could he see. Exiting the tomb was not without a lot of humor. He was doing the mummy hop. Who remembers Boris Karloff as the mummy? Remember that? Man, ooh, chilling. Still not as bad as the creature from the Black Lagoon. I don't know. Lazarus exited the tomb. The mourner's grief turned to joy. Jesus knew it was going to happen, so why weep? He understood the problem of evil and its consequences more than any other mortal man. He was the creator. He'd been in the Garden of Eden when our parents chose to disobey him for a fig. He knew every sin, every hurt, every pain and death that followed in the wake century after century. He knew he would preside over the judgment of all the unrighteous to be sentenced to the second death. I appreciate that he cries. Hebrews says we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Raising Lazarus brought glory to Jesus, but it also revealed God's love for his creation. 
Not just love as an attribute of God or uh, by dryly stating that God is love. You know, in, in romances, it's a big deal, you know, when, when you're, the partner says, I love you. I realize that I love you. And do you love me? Yes, I love you back. And it's, it's just exciting, right? Love. Sometimes I think we, we take for granted emotion in our relationship with God. Not that we want to go crazy or we, we know everything about emotion. But, uh, you know, when I say God is love or God loves you, that, man, that, that's exciting, is it not? The creator of the universe loves you. God the Father, as I said earlier, loves you as much as he loves his son. It solves a lot of problems theologically in terms of assurance of salvation and different things if you really, really believe that God loves you because you know that he can never abandon you, that he will approve all his promises to you. He will keep you with his providence. Whatever happens in your life, he's in charge of. On and on and on. Jesus or excuse me, Charles Spurgeon once said, a Jesus who never wept could never wipe away my tears. We wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And while we do, he loves us with an everlasting love.